Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We are looking at Psalm 125 this morning. Psalm 125, as we continue our series through the Psalms of Ascent, we have come now to the end of our second cycle, Psalm 125, the sixth Psalm of Ascent, as we find it preserved for us in God's Word. I'll begin reading at the beginning of the Psalm all the way to the end, all five verses. Psalm 125 is a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us this morning. Let's go to him and ask for his help once again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you specifically this morning for your word in Psalm 125. We ask that your spirit would illumine us to understand your scriptures, even as he inspired their writing thousands of years ago. We pray, Lord, that we would see more of ourselves and most importantly, more of you and of Christ in this text. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, this is quite a special psalm to me personally, as I'm considering my own life and the things that led me to even where I am now. My very first Reformed church was a URC congregation in Southern California when I was in seminary. And as I look back on those years, it was a wonderful time of getting to know Reformed theology and Reformed Christians as well, both of which were blessings to me. And I remember during the summer of COVID, which doesn't seem like all that long ago, in June of 2020, I had my last service there. And during that last service in the morning, the pastor preached on Psalm 125. And I've always sort of remembered that because it was a wonderful encouragement and blessing to me to consider that these things were true even for me, even as I was transitioning out of school and out of a place where I had worked and out of a church and out of a job and into new things that God was with me. I pray that God would do the same for us this morning to give us confidence in the strange and unlooked for things and turns of life. So this psalm has to do with fundamental things about our faith fundamental things about who we are as Christians and really good reminders for us of things that we often, if we are honest with ourselves, do quite often forget. Things like the sovereignty of God and his care and concern for us. And I hope that we're coming to appreciate the Psalms of Ascent as they give us a big picture of the big things of the Christian life of this pilgrimage or this journey that we are on from here in this place where we seem sometimes perhaps far from God and in a place of pain and suffering, even as we're on the road and until we get to the new Jerusalem above, where we can understand that God is with us forever. Like Psalm 122, this is the third psalm in this second cycle. If you remember, if you're new with us, these psalms of ascent go in cycles of three. There are five of these cycles. And the first one always begins with the psalmist in trouble, it seems, or feeling far from God. The second one has him on the road or sort of in process And he is trusting in God on the way, and the final one has him sort of arriving in a sense, whether at Jerusalem or the temple or something else, and he is confident in his God, and he recognizes that this is what he was made for, for all time. 
We know, of course, don't we, that all good things come to an end. Boys and girls, even you think of your birthday or of Christmas or these different things, you recognize that these days, as wonderful as they are, eventually come to the end and the sun sets and your friends or your family go home and pretty soon you have to go to bed like any other day. We know that all good things do come to an end, or at least they do here. We can be confident that what we read about in Psalm 125 is something that will never come to an end. And so we'll have three headings this morning, each of them in turn based on the verses of this psalm. In verses 1 through 2, we see the picture. The picture, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. What a wonderful picture this is for us of the true concern and care of God for us, of his provision for us, of his providence for us. We see here an immovable Mount Zion, essentially. And we can ask, perhaps at this point, what exactly does the psalmist mean by Mount Zion? Because we know, as we read, especially the Old Testament, Zion can mean a number of different things. It can mean the Temple Mount itself, the mount where the tabernacle and later the temple was put. It can mean Jerusalem as a whole. It can mean the people of God. It can mean all these different sorts of things. In the New Testament, we see that it refers to the heavenly mountain that the earthly mountain was pointing to. What exactly is in view here? What is this psalmist, whoever he is, trying to communicate to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, it seems like this is a picture of the earthly city of Jerusalem, of the earthly place of God, the earthly city where God dwells with his people, at least in that time and in that place. And it's meant to be given as a comfort to the people that this place will not be moved, this place will not be shaken, this place will not be removed from the earth, at least as far as God is concerned. And perhaps it's a helpful thing for us to remember as well. Now, I don't know about you, and I talked to someone this week that this was not the case for, but for me, I don't often walk around considering how solid the earth under my feet is. I don't often think, oh, this earth could open up and swallow me up, and there could be a great sinkhole that appears. Perhaps if I lived in Florida, I would think differently. But as I consider these things, I often take this for granted. The earth is not going to swallow me up. But you think of those who perhaps are not so sure of the steadiness of the earth. Think of those who are on a ship for a period of time and you have that idea of sea legs. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone who gets off a ship after being on for quite a while or on a boat off rough seas and you see they're not quite steady on their feet. They aren't entirely sure that the ground below them is going to support them or how to exactly walk. Or maybe I think of if you haven't had sea legs, perhaps you've been on a long trip through an airport. And you have those moving walkways and you have to get from one to the airport to the next and you're continually walking quickly on those moving walkways and you finally get to the end and everything seems a little weird. It seems like you should be moving much faster than you actually are. And you sort of have sea legs as far as that goes. And it can be very disorienting because the thing that's meant to hold you up, your legs and the ground underneath them, seems sort of unsteady. I think there are times like that in all of our lives, metaphorically, aren't there? That the Christian life, although we know it is good and right and true and beautiful, that it is leading to something wonderful, that at times we can feel a little bit unsteady. We can begin to wonder, we can begin to doubt, we begin, can begin to think, is this really steady underneath me? Do I have security and stability in reality? God's word comes to us. Psalm 125 comes to us and says, yes, we have security and stability. We have them in Yahweh. We have them in the Lord God. We can say, as New Testament believers, we have them in Christ. That we have safety. We don't have to worry, even though things may come against us, even though we may be in a world that itself is dangerous and unsafe, 
that we ourselves will be kept. We will not fall away. We will not be allowed to be parted from our God forever. And we have stability. Even as things change, even things so simple and so generally unimportant as going to two services in the morning instead of one, we see that life is full of changes for us as the people of God. But we can be confident that our God is the same. He remains the same forever. And so this is a picture of an immovable mountain, Mount Zion, a Zion that is secure and is stable. And we can ask, why? Why exactly is this mountain presented as a stable mountain as opposed to others? Well, we see that there are, this, there are these ideas of the surrounding mountains, these mountains that sort of encircle Jerusalem. Now, many of us have never been to Jerusalem in person. I certainly never have. But we can kind of imagine, can't you, in your head, a picture of a mountain surrounded by other mountains. And on the central mountain is a city and a temple and the people of God dwelling with him in his presence. And they're surrounded by these mountains. And you can ask, what exactly does that have to do with anything? It sounds maybe like a drive through Colorado. Are we talking about Vail or something along those lines? Why exactly is this important? Well, it can be hard for us to imagine especially as modern-day people, because we have things like helicopters and planes and missiles and all these sorts of things, and we can say in a very real sense that there's nowhere on earth that is safe from being attacked, in the general sense. But in the ancient days, warfare was different. In the ancient days, warfare was on foot or on horseback, and if you were in a place that was a walled city surrounded by mountains all around you, you were generally secure. It was very difficult to get an army up there with enough strength to break through. And so there's this picture of Jerusalem being secure because it's surrounded by these mountains that encircle it. That's the picture that's presented for us. Now, of course, we know that sometimes it doesn't necessarily feel that way. It doesn't necessarily feel like we are surrounded and secure from attack. We know, of course, even in Jerusalem itself, in the physical earthly city of Zion, that things didn't last this way. That whenever this was written, it seemed to be a good picture of what God's provision and protection was like. But of course, we know that the mountains around Jerusalem were not all that high in the grand scheme of things, and the city did fall. That God brought the Babylonians in, and they broke through and brought Israel into exile. That later, many years later, the Romans came through and did much the same thing. So we can ask, what exactly is in view here? Because if you're trusting in the mountains, well, the mountains are only good for so much. Mountains can only do so much. And the mountains have only done so much in history. Well, ultimately, what this psalm is telling us is that God himself is our fortress. That God himself encircles us even as the mountains encircle Jerusalem. That we are to trust in him and to find our security in him. If you've ever written or uh, read what was written in the Old Testament prophets, you know that Israel was often being chastised by the prophets because they were the mouthpieces of God. And you know the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were coming to Israel or Judah at different times in their history and basically coming to them and saying, you cannot just trust in your outward forms of worship and just for the fact that the temple is in your presence to have security. Now that's what they were doing. We read, for example, in Jeremiah verse 4 of chapter 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, boys and girls, what had happened was, in that time and place, there was a physical stone temple in the midst of Jerusalem. And God had promised to dwell with his people in their midst, in that place, in a very special way. And they had become complacent. 
And they weren't really trusting in him. And they weren't really doing what he had commanded and all these other things. They thought, okay, the temple is here. The physical stone building is here. The outward forms are here. So we're safe and we have security and stability as a result of that. But Jeremiah, what the other prophets in many times and places came and told to Israel at the behest, at the command of God is the stone temple and the outward forms are not what give you stability and security. What gives you security and stability is God himself, is Yahweh himself. Now, of course, we don't have any stone temples, or at least none that I'm aware of. We don't have these things that are physically in our presence, perhaps, that we are tempted to think that's what gives us our security and stability, but we have certainly things that we can place in the place of God and say, this is what gives us security. This is what gives us stability. It could be things like our bank account when it's doing well, or our health when it's good, or perhaps a sneakier one, the idea we have in our heads of the future we're going to build for ourselves where everything's going to go well and we're going to get married or have kids or we're going to have more money or whatever it might be. We have these things where we think our security and stability is placed in this. And this is where our hope lies. And in a sense, what we're doing there is doing the exact same thing that ancient Israel or ancient Judah was doing when they looked to the temple and said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're looking at these things to give us stability, to give us safety, to give us hope and confidence and a foundation where the only true hope and confidence and foundation we can have comes to us from God through Jesus Christ. And so don't look to these things. Plan for these things, sure. Enjoy these things if you have them. Certainly, they're blessings from your Father's hand, but recognize that they are from your Father. They are not your Father himself. That your stability, your security comes from God and look to Christ. Trust in him and rest in him and know that he is the one who surrounds you, that God himself is the one who surrounds you and that is your hope even if your bank account becomes empty overnight or your health goes downhill or the future you plan for yourself never materializes. God remains the same. The Lord remains the same. Your Savior remains the same, not just in himself, but for you. And in that, you can have confidence. So live the Christian life with this sure foundation. As you begin to do things, as you begin to, as our catechism would tell us, obey all the commandments of God imperfectly but sincerely, do it with this foundation in mind. That you have God, that he is your strength, that he is your foundation, that you are not to trust in your faith either. That's a sneaky one. How often do we think, well, we're people of faith. Now I would hope that we all have faith. And I pray that each and every single person here has stronger faith than they do right now, one day. But we are not saved by the presence or strength of our faith. We are saved by what our faith apprehends, namely Jesus Christ. He is our confidence. He is our hope. This is the picture that we have. And this picture leads to the other two points that we have this morning as they flow out of them. Secondly, we have the promise of God in verse 3. The promise in verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And so we see here that even in the midst of this promise and this picture that God gives of the security of Jerusalem and the security of those who trust in him, that there is still the reality of trouble. Evil and wickedness and suffering and temptation are still real things. The psalm doesn't sweep that under the rug, much like the rest of the Psalter does not sweep evil and wickedness and sin under the rug. It recognizes that these things are true. Do you ever think, do you ever sit there and think or lay there and think late at night 
As you're maybe alone or with your spouse in bed and look at the ceiling, unable to sleep, and think, I didn't think things would be like this. I didn't think life would be so full of trouble and sin and all these different sorts of things. If you have, you're not alone. It's a fairly common idea, at least in the idea of it, maybe not the words, but the idea of it in the Psalms. The psalmist recognized, yes, life is full of trouble. Whether that's within ourselves, as David recognized in Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, and we have to repent of their sins against neighbors and ultimately against God, or trouble that comes from without that seems to be the case here in Psalm 125 that leads to temptations within. The psalmist recognizes trouble. The psalmist recognizes the things that are going wrong, that you are not the only one who is suffering. Even Christ suffered, and of course we're going to suffer in this life. But God's promise comes to us even in the midst of this trouble. You see, there was a threat to the righteous or to the upright or to those who trusted in God in this time and place. We don't know, again, why or when or where Psalm 125 was written. We know it became later a song of pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the feasts, for the three annual pilgrim feasts. But we don't know the original setting. We don't know the author, David or someone else. We don't know even if it was before or after the kingdom splits and who might have been on the throne. But we see here this idea that there seems to be some sort of threat coming from high up, humanly speaking. It talks about the scepter of wickedness that has to do with rule, that has to do with kingship, that has to do with the crown and dominion. We don't know exactly who this is a reference to or what this is a reference to. We don't know if perhaps there was an oppressive foreign king who was exerting influence and control over Israel or Judah, or if this was one of the kings of their own making who was evil and wicked and leading the people in unrighteousness. We know that certainly both happened in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. We can see here that there's a problem for the righteous. We see as it's written even in Psalm 125 verse 3, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. We can ask, what exactly does that mean? Because on the face of it, it doesn't seem that clear. It seems very general and very vague, doesn't it? Perhaps there's a reason for that. But as we consider what happened when there were either oppression or there were unjust and wicked rulers in Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, we can begin to see that there were really two main reactions that the righteous would have at times, and neither of them were good. On the one hand, there was that principle that as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. That a king would either lead the people in righteousness like his father David, or he would lead them in sin and treason against God like uh, many of the other kings who followed after David. So it could have been that. It could be that that's in view, that we don't want to have a righteous or an unrighteous king on the throne because then God's people will be tempted to follow him along in his unrighteousness. It could also be the idea of losing hope and despairing. Losing hope and despairing. Being tempted to think, There is a scepter of wickedness ruling over the land, resting on the land allotted for the upright in heart. So how can God's promises be true? How can God truly be in charge and in control of this? I think if we're honest, we probably experience both things in our own minds and our own hearts during our lives. Sometimes we see the powerful way and the powerful authority of wickedness and evil, we begin to think, well, maybe we should follow after them. Maybe that's the way to get ahead. Maybe that's the way to get what we want in this life. Or perhaps we see it and we think, well, where's God's promise now? How can he truly be in control if these things are happening, if wickedness is ruling and all these different sorts of things come into our minds and our hearts? We begin to wonder and doubt 
God is telling you in a very clear promise in Psalm 125, verse 3, don't let that enter your mind. Don't let that take root in your heart. God has promised that these things will not last. Do not let the success or power of wickedness tempt you to follow after it or cause you to doubt the one who is above all things because the great king above all kings will not let this stand forever. That wickedness and evil will not have the last word. I think it was Calvin, perhaps, in commenting on this passage, that had some sort of line about God will either break and shatter the scepter of the wicked, or he will shake their hands until it falls out. What a picture that is. What a comfort that is to us. To know that, humanly speaking, there's not a lot we can do, oftentimes, when wickedness has the scepter. But God sees And God knows, and God promises that this will not be how things always are. Remember where this leads. Remember what the end is for the wicked. Do not be tempted to follow after them and share their fate, and do not despair, because God is in control. That even now, Christ is putting all things under his feet. Even now, he is ruling and reigning in heaven. And this is the promise of the great king. As one commentator has said, it must be God who shortens evil's reign, and we are assured that he will. So you see there are those two great elements of that promise. The only way evil is going to end is that God ends it. But the wonderful comfort for believers is that he will end it. That's the message of Scripture from beginning to end, that God will come, that things will be made right, that evil will be banished and judged forever. But of course, in the meantime, the promise is not that there will be no enemies. Now, if you're like me, you think, well, that would be great if that was the case. Why couldn't we have a promise that there would be no scepter of wickedness ever? It seems like a great life. We don't know why God ordains certain things the way that he does. We know it's for our good and for ultimately his glory. But he promises certainly that even in the midst of the enemies, even in the midst of wickedness and evil and sin, that these things will not prevail. That wickedness will not have the last word. And think of this, Christian, that evil will not keep God's people from him. Because evil is not strong enough. Evil is not great enough. So we can ask, what is this land that's under the promise? The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. What land exactly is this talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that would have been the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had given to his people. But as we see in the New Testament, more clearly, we see hints of this in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, this is really a reference to the entire earth. To the new heavens and the new earth, that God will not let these things remain. That he will change things, that he will make all things new. And we think even of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Part of the all things is the promise here in Psalm 125. That God will not let the scepter of wickedness rule on the earth, rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That the righteous will be like Jerusalem, immovable and surrounded by mountains. Even in the midst of suffering, these things are true. And so we've seen the picture, the promise, now finally the prayer in verses 4 through 5. The prayer in verses 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So we see here in verse 4, everything seems to change in the psalm. I mean, there's 
evidence of continuity as far as theme goes, but the idea of the psalm changes quite a bit here. Suddenly it becomes a prayer from a promise of God to a prayer to God. Perhaps this can be a great encouragement to us. The psalmist, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew God's promise and declared God's promise and then turned around and basically prayed that God would fulfill the promise that he had made. That's instructive for us, brothers and sisters. Sometimes, perhaps, if you're like me, you wonder, what do I even pray? Maybe that's because you've woken up and it's early in the morning and you're not quite thinking straight. Or sometimes maybe it's that life just seems hard and you aren't entirely sure what the right course of action is and you aren't sure what you should be praying in the first place. Pray God's promises. Find his promises to his people in Scripture, in places like Psalm 125 or elsewhere. Pray that he will do what he has promised to do and know that he will. It may not look exactly the way you think. It may not be and probably will not be might I say, according to your timetable. But find the promises of God, pray the promises of God, and have confidence in the promises of God. So the first thing the psalmist does is he prays that God would do good to those who are good. And we can ask, what does good or upright mean here? Could it mean perfect? And certainly not. We know throughout the rest of the Bible, and especially throughout the rest of the Psalms, that there is none who is righteous. No, not one. That there's no one who keeps God's law Perfectly, And so in context, in Psalm 125, who are the good? Who are the upright in heart? Well, we see a hint in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like, are like Mount Zion. It's those who trust. It's those who are the people of faith in God. We can say as those who have more revelation than even the psalmist in Psalm 125 has. It's those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, who are resting in him and relying on God's sovereignty and whose faith leads to works. And so we can have confidence in these things, that God will do good to those who are good. Even while the wickedness, the scepter of wickedness is on the land, God will do good to those who are good. He will fulfill his promises to us. He will fulfill his promises to you if you are trusting in Christ. It's one of the things we find again and again in our Christian life, isn't it? That despair often leads to prayer. We come to the end of our rope. We come to the end of our strength the end of our mind, whatever it might be, and we think, well, there's nothing left to do but pray. Now, that's true. Despair ought to lead to prayer. But what Psalm 125 tells us is that assurance ought to lead to prayer as well. Assurance ought to lead to prayer as well. Christian, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, if you have repented of your sins and thrown yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, you have Christ. You have everything that this psalm promises. Even if you are waiting for its final and ultimate fulfillment, these things are your possession right this very moment. You have the same God of Psalm 125. You have the same promises he made to his people in the past that he will fulfill ultimately in the future, especially at the second coming in the new creation, but even now in different degrees. You have these things. And so pray as a result. Pray in confidence and assurance just as much as you pray in despair and concern. Know that God will hear you, that God will answer. So the psalmist prays that God will do good to those who are good. He also has this idea in there of leading away in verse 5. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. What this is saying is God will fulfill his promise to not let the scepter of wickedness rest on the land allotted to the righteous. 
He's saying that judgment is coming, that hell is coming, that the wrath of God is coming on the last day especially, but even hints and previews of it up until then. That there's this really distinction between those who are uprights and those who are trusting in God and trusting in Christ and who are good. It's a contrast we see again and again, especially in the Psalms, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked, and they always go to different places. And so if you have Christ this morning, God has promised to do good to you, and you can pray to him that he would and know that he will hear and he will answer. In his own way, in his own time, but certainly. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ, and you are in a different position before God, you are counted among those at this point who are turning aside to crooked ways and being led away with evildoers. It's not led away to a good place. It's led away to judgment. It's led away to condemnation. It's, we could say it's being led away to hell itself. So repent of your sins and throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. To know that this is the day of salvation, that he will hear you, that he will answer you. And if you're trusting in Christ, then pray that God would make wrongs right. Pray that he would continue to do the things he has promised in this psalm, that he would he would continue to fulfill the promises of Psalm 125, even as he has been doing from that time until now, that he would do it even more so. Pray ultimately that Christ would return at the end of the age and make all things new, and even the great things and the good things he has given to us now will pale in comparison to what the new heavens and the new earth will be. Pray that these things will happen. And know that they will happen as well. Finally, we see the end of this psalm. Peace be upon Israel. Much like Psalm 122, Psalm 125 ends this cycle of Psalms of Ascent with this idea of peace and a declaration and a request for peace. Do you remember in Psalm 122 it closed, or towards the end of that psalm, there was that idea of pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And here we have this request of God, peace be upon Israel. It's really a request for God's benediction and blessing. But as Reformed people, as we close our services with the benediction, as the minister raises his hand and pronounces these words of blessing upon you, what is happening is essentially what the psalmist is praying for here in Psalm 125, that peace would be upon Israel, that peace would be upon God's people. That when you hear that declaration, don't just think of it as window dressing or the sign that we are done now and we can go get snacks or whatever it might be. That is God himself, from his word, declaring that all of you who are trusting in Christ are going with his peace. That you have what he has promised to you here in Psalm 125. That he, as he has promised, will never leave or forsake you. As we close, we can consider perhaps the words of Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. Listen to this very closely. I know it's very basic to many of us, but perhaps we forget it far too often. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. 
This is our Savior. This is what he has done for us. This is the promise that he has made to us, and he is fulfilling it in his Son, by his Holy Spirit, even now. And so remember the sovereignty of God. Even as Reformed Christians, it's sometimes easy to forget. Even as you depart from this place and go to your places of school or work or the home this week and things happen, remember that God is in control of all these things. And if you doubt, if you begin to wonder, if you begin to be tempted to look elsewhere or to do other things, look at your Savior. Look at your God. Look at your security who encircles you as the mountains encircle Mount Zion, as the mountains encircle Jerusalem. Know that he holds you in his hand. We sang Zechariah's song this morning. I would encourage you. This is not a direction from the word of God, but it's pastoral advice. Today or this week, go and read Zechariah's song in Luke 1, 68-79. And see how all these things that we find here in Psalm 125 are fulfilled now or will be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And trust in him and rest in him and do your good works out of a foundation of confidence that he is your security, he is your stability, and that you can pray the promises of God back to God and know that he will hear and he will answer. God has said to us, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your greatness and goodness that together give us confidence that you can and will fulfill your promises to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are our foundation, you are our help, you are our strength, that in Christ you have saved us and rescued us and redeemed us, that we can know that these promises truly are ours, that all of your promises to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would strengthen us to remember these things as we go about our weeks and go around the rest of this month and this year. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to pray to you not only in times of despair, but in times of assurance, to bring your promises back to you and to know that you will hear and you will do. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.